Our scripture for today comes from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, who he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and your you're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless this time, Lord. We pray that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When the Islamic State terrorists seek to gain control within a city or a country, they never begin with a frontal assault. All across the Middle East, they always begin by building division and war within the country before they attempt to take it over by force from without. Many of the suicide bombings that you hear and read about are strategically planned and executed to create infighting between ethnic and religious minorities within the country. So in a predominantly Shiite country like Iraq, they'll bomb a Sunni mosque. In Iraq, about 65% of the Muslim population ascribe to the Shiite sort of uh, You don't want to call it a denomination. That makes them very upset. About 23 to 30% of the Muslims there are Sunni. And so by bombing a Sunni mosque, they stir up a minority within the country, create resentment between the minority and the rest of the population, and weaken the entire country before they begin their assault. And that's why it has been almost impossible to maintain peace in Iraq because the country from within is already deeply divided and the Islamic State has stoked those divisions with great and deadly success. Divide and conquer. It is an ancient strategy that works well. And that is exactly what they have attempted to do in Egypt by bombing Christian churches. Their intention is to create deep divisions within the country to weaken it from within. And I hope you'll forgive me. I know I've mentioned this two weeks in a row already, but I'd like to give you an update about what's happening now. Two weeks ago, you know that there were bombings in two different churches in Egypt on Palm Sunday. And I believe that how the Coptic church has responded gives us a living example of exactly what we will see in our text in Philippians today. So the magazine Christianity Today reported this week that the widow of Nassim Fahim, who was the security guard at St. Mark's Cathedral, his widow went on national TV in Egypt and said this. I'm not angry 
at the one who did this, she said, with their children by her side. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. Stunned, the host of the show, who is a Muslim, his name is Adib, stammered about how cops have been bearing atrocities for hundreds of years as a Christian minority, but he couldn't escape the central scandal of forgiveness. And this is what he said as a Muslim. How great is this forgiveness you have? If it were my father, I could never say this. But this is their faith and religious conviction. Millions marveled with him across the airwaves in Egypt. And if you would like, if you look at the Christianity Today article, find it online. I'll post it on Facebook for those of you on Facebook. You can actually watch the video if you want to. It's not in English, but they've put English subtitles on it. You can see firsthand this man's widow tell the world, we as Christians believe in forgiveness. We forgive you. The Coptic church has been prepared for this by a history of martyrdom that has plagued the church since the third century. It has not been easy to be a Christian in Egypt since the beginning of the church. And recently, this persecution has become horrifically intense. You may remember in February of 2015, the Islamic State in Libya kidnapped and beheaded 21 mostly Coptic Christians. And at that time also, the message of forgiveness issued by their families provided a witness to the Middle East that Christians believe in forgiveness. And particularly the Christians in Egypt took notice because they are predominantly Coptic. Since that time, the entire Middle East has continued in a war weariness. And many countries have been terribly weakened. And then on Palm Sunday, there were the bombings that we've already mentioned. And yet Coptic Christians are still standing up and as, as an example of genuine faith. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the widow of that security guard. That night, there was an Orthodox priest named Bulls George who also said, He thanks and loves those who did this crime. He was being broadcast on a Christian TV network that is really mainly for Coptic Christians in Egypt. And so he was speaking to a congregation in Cairo, and his words were broadcast, and he said this. This is a direct quote. I long to talk to you about our Christ and tell you how wonderful he is. And then turning to the church, he said, how about we make a commitment today to pray for them? If they know that God is love and experience his love, they could not do these things. Never, never, never. And this isn't an isolated believer or priest saying these things. It's being reported that the services from Holy Week doubled in attendance. That the churches are full in Egypt and flowing out into the streets. Because their faith is being shown as genuine. As the worst thing in the world could happen. And they are still proclaiming Jesus. 
But this is critical. I want to make this clear too. The strength of the church is not only against enemies outside the church. One man who is a bishop there in the, in the Coptic church said this. It's also against the enemy within. He said the Libyan martyrs were a turning point for the church as cops watched the victims call out to Jesus in their moments of death. And he said, many in his Orthodox diocese have since repented of sin and changed the focus of their life, making faith a priority. He said, watching those men die in their last moments, calling out to Jesus, reminded everyone that they need to live for Jesus. He said this, martyrdom is linked to the Christian life, to carry your cross and follow him. Since we are united to Christ in this life, we are his image. As he forgave, so must we. Let me repeat what he said. Since we are united to Christ in this life, we are his image. As he forgave, so must we. You've heard it said that since Jesus has ascended to heaven, if an unbelieving world wants to look at him, they have nowhere else to look at except at the church. We are the image of Christ here. That's exactly what 1 John says. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And this makes the message of the Coptic church practical for us here in Holly. Because they recognize that their enemy is not just ISIS from the outside. It is the world and the flesh and the devil, which is true for us as well. We also need to repent of sin and make faith a priority. And as we turn to Philippians, let me suggest to you that the events from the past two weeks are a living example of what Paul wrote to the church 2,000 years ago. And it's an example for us. So let's read the text together. You can find it on page 980 of one of the Blue Bibles. Or if you have a large print Bible, it's on page 1164. And the, the large print Bibles, I think, are mainly in the middle, but there should be one in just about every row throughout the church here. So if you need one, I'd encourage you to find one and put it wherever you sit so it's there for you. So page 980 in the Blue Bible, or if you have your own Bible, Philippians chapter 1, let me read the text today. Starting in verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul has written that his own suffering in prison has caused the good news of Jesus to spread far and wide. And not knowing if he will live or if he will die, he says for him to live as Christ and to die is gain. Though he longs to see Jesus face to face, he puts the needs of the church before his own desires and is committed to the service of the church. 
And he longs to see the church grow in joy and in faith. And in our text today, he moves from talking about himself and reassuring the church that even though he's in jail, he's actually doing quite well. Now he shifts to talking about the church itself. And to sum up everything he says, he instructs the church, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And that is a stunning statement. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith. That there is absolutely nothing you could do to earn God's favor. We believe that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, crucified on the cross, bearing our sins, paying the full price for them, dying and rising from the dead. To receive God's favor, you don't have to do anything. You receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for you and rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And Paul says, now that you've believed, live a life worthy of it. We all understand if someone does you a favor, you owe them. You're in a debt. And the bigger the favor, the bigger your debt. But God himself became a man and died in your place. What can you ever do to repay him? How can you ever live a life worthy of something you never deserved and never could deserve? Paul describes what he means in the rest of the passage. And this is the first point in my outline today. That the church needs to stand together in a firm, united fight. This is a firm, united fight. Let me read verse 27 again. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I think sometimes we forget that the Christian faith is a constant battle As we wait for the return of the Lord. Satan opposes us. Our own sinful desires constantly attack us. Making Jesus seem unimportant. And there is no room for idleness. Let me say this. If you do not have a plan for spiritual growth as a Christian. If you are not doing something so that you grow in knowledge and obedience. Then you are idle. And if you are idle. You will drift. Normally, this would be the part where I would tell you, you need to read your Bible and pray more. That's probably true. But that's not what the text says. Paul says that the key to striving is unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ. The entire church, not just a few individuals, is to strive for the faith of the gospel. For the spread of the gospel to those who don't believe. And for the growth of faith so that those who do believe will live like it more and more. So let me ask you, what are you as an individual believer doing with other believers on a weekly basis So that the ministry 
of First Baptist is effective? Are you striving together with us in prayer? Are you serving in a ministry with people here? Are you in fellowship with people from here who can help you grow in your faith? The entire life of individual believers should be in service to the Lord. And this service must be done in the context of the church. Paul says it like this. One spirit, one mind, side by side. This covers both emotional unity, so that we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. And this covers doctrinal unity, so that we learn the truths of Scripture together and we share them. It means that we shouldn't just avoid talking about things that we can't agree on. We don't just go along to get along. That isn't unity. But it means that we love each other and work towards agreement. Side by side. Not each of us on our own independently living out our calling. Praise God, God has given each of us different gifts. So this will look differently for all of us. But the vision is we should use our gifts together. And the words Paul uses here are emphatic. He says, stand firm. Strive together. Think of a line of soldiers with every muscle tense awaiting a charge. Now mix that mental picture of tough soldiers with the radical joy that is all over Philippians. They are eager for the fight because they know they've been made for it. Is that your mental picture of our church? Are we striving joyfully? Or do we live disconnected lives and come here once a week? It's a question I think everyone has to ask. Are we striving together? As you look at the people around you today, do you feel like in some capacity you're serving with all of them? Even if you don't necessarily work side by side. Do you know the strengths of other people and rejoice in them and encourage them and support them and pray for them? This is not a message where I say everyone has to come work Forgotten Harvest. Not everyone can do that. But this is a message where I say you thank God for the people who do and you pray for them that it's a good ministry that ministers to people's spiritual needs as well as their physical needs. And the same with our child care. I'll be real honest. I am not cut out for child care. Right out of college, I went back to the church where I'd been for years and was serving in a couple capacities. I played, played guitar in the worship band, and they asked me to teach a children's Sunday school. And I said, I can't do that. <laughs> and I, I actually said no. I said it wouldn't be good for the kids or for me. Not everyone is going to be in the same type of ministry. So please understand that. But the unity of the body says that you care about where other people are serving and support them with the gifts that you do have. Many of you are actively serving and I thank God for you. But I believe that we have room to grow as a church. Very often, 
We can serve to accomplish a task, and we don't really build each other up. So I can work side by side with you for an hour and still have no idea how I should be praying for you. Or where you're growing, or where you're struggling. If we're going to fight for faith to be deeper, our fellowship needs to be deeper. And let me ask you, because many of you do spend time with each other, if someone were to overhear your conversation with another member of our church or another attender, would they know that you're both Christians? Does your faith actually change the way you interact with each other here in the church? Some people love to talk about Bible study, which is good and spiritual. But they only talk about it in a way that doesn't touch them. In other words, I could talk all day about the book of 1 John. But that doesn't create fellowship. What creates fellowship is when I tell you what God has done in my heart and in my life through 1 John. And how specifically God has convicted me that sometimes... I don't love my brothers. And when I begin to tell you what God's doing in my life, that creates an opportunity for fellowship. You begin to know this is how I should pray for him. I want to urge you. When you see other believers here in the church, be willing to tell them what God is doing in your life and be honest about where you're struggling if you don't feel like you're growing. That's how we deepen our fellowship. Can you imagine if you were downtown at Avia and an unbelieving waitress heard you talk about reading the Gospel of Matthew and how you suddenly realized that you needed to forgive your ex-husband? That's a testimony. Or if you told a guy at work that you were listening to Christian radio and you realized you needed to go home and apologize to your wife. That is where the truth of Scripture becomes personal. And when we share those things with each other, we deepen our fellowship. When faith gets personal, it gets real. And I believe our fellowship can deepen here. It needs to deepen if we are going to experience the unity that Paul is talking about that allows us to strive together. This is the only way that we will be able to withstand Attacks on our church without fear. And Paul talks about that in the next verse. The second point today is a fearless sign of God's justice. A fearless sign of God's justice. Let me read verse 28 again. Paul writes, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. I describe this verse as a fearless sign of God's justice because I believe that God's justice captures both aspects of saving those who trust in Jesus and judging those who reject and oppose Jesus. But I need to say a word about fearlessness. Remember, Paul is talking about living and dying. Our Coptic brothers and sisters in Egypt are facing death right now. They would read these verses With such a different attitude than we do. But we too are facing all kinds of things that cause us fear. And fear will always kill your witness. 
Because if you're afraid, it's a sign that you don't actually trust God. And let me be clear, God will allow things in your life that will cause great pain. And I'll talk about that in just a moment when we look at verses 29 and 30. But you can have confidence that God uses your pain. That God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Divorce, death, cancer, all things. If an enemy of the gospel sees a Christian die with faith, it will be a sign to them that they will one day face Jesus, not as the Savior, but as the judge. The witness of the Christian faith is a sign of judgment to those who will not believe. But if you act like an unbeliever with fear and anxiety, trying to save yourself from every pain, people will look at you and say, Jesus doesn't really offer anything because that supposed Christian isn't any different than anyone else in pain. Imagine for a second if those Coptic Christians, instead of responding with bold faith and forgiveness, had gone out and bombed a mosque. The Muslim world would say, see, they don't believe in forgiveness. Jesus can't really be the Savior because these Christians are no different than anyone else. But because of their response of forgiveness, Muslims know Jesus changes people. And some of them are coming to faith in Christ and they are believing that there must be something to the Christian gospel. And others are fearful because they still oppose Jesus and deep down they've seen evidence that they are on the wrong side of this fight. Paul would know this from experience. You remember Paul once persecuted Christians and he witnessed the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And he says, That this kind of faith that rejoices even in death puts fear in the gut of a non-believer. And Paul says at the same time, it's a clear sign of salvation to the believer. If you experience something that you know should cause you distress, and you face it with calm confidence in Jesus Christ, your faith will be encouraged to you. Because you will have a sign of its genuineness. You will be encouraged. And that's why Paul says it's actually a gift to suffer for Christ. That's the third thing that we'll see in our text this morning. A gift of faith and suffering. And this is verses 29 and 30. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says this really shocking thing that suffering is granted to us. Like everyone actually really wants it and only a lucky few get it. Why does he say it like that? Why is suffering a gift? Well, to be completely honest, it isn't for everyone. But for those who know Christ, it is. And let me give you just a few reasons. Suffering is a gift because it shows the world how valuable Christ is. If you can lose what everyone in the world values and maintain your joy, it means you have something that's worth more. The fact that you get to show how valuable Christ is, 
is a privilege that God Himself will one day reward. Suffering is a gift because it helps you let go of idols that compete with Christ for your affections. Suffering is a gift because it helps us be more like Jesus. Suffering is a gift because it has the potential to unite the church. And I want to give you two examples of that. Suffering is a gift because it has the potential to unite the church. I know Tig Vanneman, the pastor at Great Lakes Bible, because right after I became the pastor here, there was an ordinance proposed by the village of Holly that we both believed was harmful to the community and threatening to the church. And so we worked together to oppose it. And I love that man. He is a good pastor. And without that tiny little bit of opposition, we never would have come together. I wouldn't know him. I mean, I have a desire to get to know the pastors who are in the neighborhood, but life is busy. And there are many of you that I don't know. So I have not sought to meet every pastor just yet, and I probably wouldn't even know him. But that tiny little bit of opposition and suffering, the moment I got the email and read the ordinance and thought, good grief, why did this have to be the first month that I was a pastor? That tiny little bit of suffering led to greater unity between churches here in Holly. Give you a second example of that. I'm going to be real honest. I can't tell you the last time I thought very hard and long about the Christian church in Egypt. Know that there are Christians there. Historically, it's one of the oldest churches in the world. Alexandria was one of the first and strongest churches. You can read about it being planted in Acts. It goes back that far. But until I read about what they were suffering and what they were enduring, I hadn't prayed for the church in Egypt. I just don't even think about them. And reading about what they endured and their suffering has, from the other side of the world, encouraged me to keep them in prayer. And I want to tell you, the article that I read in Christianity Today is so recent, I don't think it's in print. If it's in print, I'll make copies of it and you guys can look at it and read it. I want to encourage you to do that because I was encouraged. The quotes that I was reading from believers come right from 1 John. They are demonstrating the genuineness of their faith by proclaiming that God is love. And their suffering has helped the church globally unite. I'm more united with them than I was two weeks ago. So Paul says that this suffering is actually a gift. It's a gift when it's in your life too. And I pray that God uses it to bring our church closer together. Can you say that suffering has worked that way for you? Even for believers, pain can drive a wedge between them and the church and it can hurt their relationship with Christ. So as I close this morning, let me urge you, don't let it. If you're a believer in pain today, recognize that it is a gift from God who works all things together for your good. But before I close this message today, I want to remind you of the main point that we should strive together for the gospel in unity. Many things keep us from having unity. Pride, which is why in just a few 
verses, Paul is going to begin talking about the humility of Christ and putting others before yourself. Pride kills unity. A lack of real community. You can share a meal with someone and not have community. I'm not talking just about spending time together. Exclusive friendships where you're close to one or two people but don't know where the rest of the church is. That hinders unity. And even just a lack of an intentional striving will prevent us from having genuine unity. People that don't work to build friendships just naturally drift apart. My prayer for today is that our church would have greater unity. And I have a a few ideas about how we can foster that as a church, and I, I hope to be talking to you about that soon. But for now, let me say this. I, as a pastor, need to continue to get to know you as a church better. And when I first came, I intended to invest more time in visitation than I have. And so I apologize. I feel like we could be more united if I took more time for visitation during the week. And it's something that I will do to work more for the unity of the church. But hear me, I've just admitted this is, this is my responsibility, but it's not all my responsibility. It's the responsibility of the entire church. And so I want to urge you to build this kind of unity together. Don't wait for me to do it. Maybe you already have close friends here in the church, but there are new people both in this service and in the second service. If you've been here for years, do you know the new people who are sharing our fellowship now? Have you had a meal with them? Have you told them how you came to Christ? Have you asked how they came to Christ? I want to urge you, sometime within the next two weeks, I say two weeks, not one week, because this week's probably already full for everybody, right? Sometime within the next two weeks, spend time with someone here that you don't know. For the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Invite them over. Go to the villager. Make time to have real, genuine fellowship. Tell people where you need prayer in your life. Tell people what God is teaching you. Is there, is there a preacher on the radio that you like to listen to? Tell them about that. Don't just tell them about the preacher. Tell them what it's doing in your life. Make sure that you are open and willing to share. And I want to encourage you, sometime within the next two weeks, build the unity of our church by intentionally spending time with someone in a way that actually contributes to our unity together. So that at the end of that half hour or hour, you will know, I really need to pray for this person here. And they will know, I really need to pray for this person here. Let me urge you to come to our prayer meeting. It's very difficult to be united in prayer if we don't dedicate time to pray together as a church. A prayer list helps, but if you look at our prayer list, mostly it's just names. If you don't know those people, you don't know their entire needs. And so let me urge you to come to prayer meeting. And whatever God lays on your heart to do, be faithful to do it. I want to ask you to commit to striving for the unity of the church, of our fellowship here in First Holly. Let us as a church strive to live worthy 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing firm, striving together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, the free gift of grace that welcomes us into your family. And Lord, now we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Egypt as a church. We pray that they would be united and bold in telling others of their hope in Christ. We thank you for their witness and their testimony. We ask that you would comfort those who are grieving. We pray that you would supply all of their needs so that those who are widowed won't lack in essentials, in food, in clothing, in shelter. We pray that the church would support them faithfully. We pray that many non-believers, many Muslims would come to faith in Christ. We ask that their witness would bear fruit and that Muslims would worship at the feet of Jesus who provides us with the forgiveness for our sins. We pray that here in Holly, we would strive to live lives worthy of the gospel. That we would not be divided as a church. We ask that you would heal divisions where they exist. We pray that you would move in our hearts to seek forgiveness. We as a church ask forgiveness for holding grudges and being lazy when we should be diligently working to build the church. We pray that you would fill us with a spirit of brotherly love that would build up the church in every way. We ask that you would build strong bonds not only in our church, but in every church in Holly and around the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.